It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. March 3rd, 1992 was the fifth day of Wangari Mathai's hunger strike. The ecologist and political activist had hoped that her peaceful protest at Uhuru Park in Nairobi, Kenya, would lead to a nonviolent solution, even as communications between her fellow protesters and the growing crowd of police broke down. Wangari's goal was to protest the corrupt actions of Kenya's president, who had been adamant about getting rid of her ever since she'd garnered international fame for her pro-environment, anti-corruption advocacy work. She was prepared to fight if she needed to. On March 3rd, she got the chance. Police in riot gear broke through the lines, using tear gas and batons on the peaceful protesters. They ordered Wangari and her followers to disperse, but the protesters didn't budge. The attacks grew more violent. Wangari tried to organize her people so that she could lead them to safety. Before she had a chance, she was struck in the head and knocked unconscious. She spent several days in the hospital in a coma. When she awoke, she went back to the protesters' camp in the park to help plan the next act of civil disobedience. This was the kind of resolute behavior Kenya had come to expect from Wangari Mathai over her more than 40 years of public service and environmental awareness campaigns. As one of Kenya's first female scientists, Wangari made it her life's mission to fight deforestation and use ecology to improve the well-being of her neighbors. Throughout her life, she was challenged by institutionalized sexism and short-sighted capitalism. But through it all, she stood strong, just like the trees she fought to protect. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures on the Parcast Network. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Wangari Mathai, the tree mother of Africa. One of Kenya's first female scientists, Wangari believed that ecological destruction and poverty were closely linked. For four decades in the late 20th century, she built a movement around tree planting to help the women of Kenya reclaim power over their own lives and livelihoods. That movement grew into a political advocacy organization, and Wangari became famous worldwide for her pro-democracy work. At Parcast, we are grateful to you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. 
Now, back to the life of Wangari Mathai. Throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, European settlers invaded the region we now know as Kenya. In 1920, Kenya officially became a British colony. For over 20 years, black Kenyans were legally barred from holding political office or from voting, as British-appointed governors operated the country in a manner that benefited Britain. Kenya was rich in natural resources, and Britain mined the country and exported these resources back to their own country. During the same period, the British sought to modernize Kenya through industrialization and replace traditional Kenyan culture with European practices. The British required that all Kenyans learn English. Traditional Kenyans had no written language, so the British taught them to read and write in English and Swahili. The people of Kenya were also strongly encouraged to convert to Christianity, as certain high-profile jobs were reserved for practicing Christians. As a result, Christianity quickly became the major religion of Kenya. Native Kenyans suffered under British rule as their culture was eradicated and their lands were seized and granted to British colonizers. As Kenya became more anglicized throughout the 1920s and 1930s, the people felt a growing sense of resentment toward the colonial rulers. It was amid this brewing unrest that Wangari Mathai was born. Wangari, whose birth name was Muta, came into the world on April 1, 1940, in a small town called Ehithe in the rural region of Nyeri. Despite the growing specter of British rule, rural Kenya was still very traditional in 1940. As such, Wangari's was the last generation raised in the tradition of her people. When she was born, the women of Ehithe gathered local bananas, sugarcane, sweet potatoes, and roasted lamb's meat. Her mother chewed all these foods together, then poured a bit of the juice into baby Wangari's mouth. In this way, Wangari would taste the fruits of nature even before her first drop of breast milk. Wangari spent her early years at a compound where her father and his many wives lived. Polyamory was part of traditional Kenyan culture, and as such, Wangari was raised in a large family of multiple siblings, half-siblings, and mothers. Ahithe was too small to have its own schools, so as Wangari's siblings grew older, they would move to the nearby larger town, also called Nyeri, for their education. In 1947, when Wangari was seven years old, she and her biological mother moved to join her siblings in Nyeri. During these years in Nyeri, Wangari came to fall in love with gardening. She and her mother maintained a small patch of ground which Wangari used to grow maize, beans, sweet potatoes, and millet. She developed a passion for planting and growing that stayed with her for her entire life. One of Wangari's weekend chores was to gather firewood. She'd cut down the smaller trees around their house, but always left the fig trees undisturbed. Kenyans believed that fig trees were to always be set aside as trees of God. Wangari didn't know it at that young age, but fig trees actually played a key role in Kenyan ecology. The roots were deep and strong enough to break apart underground rocks and access subterranean water reservoirs. The stream from which Wangari's family drew their water was made possible by fig tree roots. Kenyans may not have known the scientific reason for practices like protecting fig trees, but their traditions still helped to conserve the environment. 
As European settlers sought to dismantle those traditions, they also damaged this precious natural balance. As an adult, Wangari would dedicate her life to undoing damage caused by Britain's control over Kenya. However, there was one benefit of British colonialism, education. It wasn't common for Kenyan girls to go to school at that time. In fact, Wangari spent her first few weeks in Nyeri assisting her mother with chores and learning how to do basic housework. But the school Wangari's brothers attended was a British Christian school, and unlike traditional institutions, allowed education for young girls. So when Wangari's brother Nderitu asked why Wangari couldn't go to school with the rest of them, Wangari's mother didn't have a good answer to that question. And so Wangari soon joined her brothers in the Nyeri school. There were a few other girls in her class, but her presence at the school was still fairly radical at the time. This was one early example of how Wangari was a woman of two worlds. She was deeply rooted in the traditions of her native Kenya, but she also was able to take advantage of the opportunities provided by the more global outlook of the British colonizers. Make no mistake, Wangari witnessed colonial oppression from a young age, and it played no small part in her future activism in speaking out against corrupt authority. But at the same time, the British enforced some practices that Wangari actively benefited from. Wangari thrived in school, and her parents soon recognized that she was gifted. In 1952, the 12-year-old Wangari was enrolled in St. Cecilia's Intermediate Primary School, a British-funded Catholic school. Wangari converted to Catholicism soon after arriving. Though her parents feared that this would put her at odds with her Kenyan roots, Wangari came to view herself as a modern woman who was defined by two worlds, her traditional Kenyan upbringing and her later Catholic education. The nuns at St. Cecilia's instilled in Wangari the practices of tending to the land and the natural beauty of the earth. They emphasized a moral, selfless life, which Wangari took to heart. She graduated from Loreto High School, Lemuru, in 1960 at the age of 20 with a passion for both ecology and social justice. Her initial plan for secondary education was to enroll in Makerere University in Uganda, which at that time was one of East Africa's only universities that accepted women. But Wangari had graduated at the top of her class, and her academic record actually qualified her for the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation Scholarship. Well, this was a program enacted in 1960 by Senator and presidential candidate John F. Kennedy that paid for Kenyan students to relocate to America for a college education. With her scholarship, Wangari was able to move to Kansas and enroll in Mount St. Scholastica College. She graduated in 1964 with a bachelor's degree in biological sciences. She then enrolled in the University of Pittsburgh and graduated in 1966 with her master's of science. She returned to Kenya that same year. While Wangari had been gone, Kenya had gained its independence from Britain. In 1966, the country was in flux. Though it was now an independent nation, most of Kenya still utilized dangerous European agricultural practices. The British had used much of Kenya's farmland to grow cash crops, and over 20 years of this had stripped much of the country's soil of its nutrients. 
Many of these farming practices were not sustainable. Wangari returned to Kenya to find that rural villagers were scavenging for food. Urban citizens ate cheap, chemical-laced processed food. Malnutrition was on the rise across the entire country. Many Kenyans had forgotten or neglected centuries of effective traditional farming techniques. In a moment almost too symbolic, when Wangari returned to her childhood home in Nyeri in 1966, she looked for the fig tree that her mother had always told her to leave alone. It had been chopped down. The soil had gone barren, and the stream nearby had long since evaporated. Wangari realized then and there what her calling in life was. Here she was, a college-educated woman who specialized in ecology back in her home country, which was now suffering from a massive shortage of trees. She set out to create a movement to plant more trees across all of Kenya and lead the entire country toward more sustainable farming practices. It wouldn't be easy, but Wangari felt she was up to the challenge. Coming up next, we'll discuss Wangari's early professional life and how she came to found the tree-planting Green Belt movement. Now back to the story. While she attended college in the United States from 1960 to 1966, Wangari Mathai learned of the connection between healthy trees, healthy soil, and a healthy economy. Shortly after her return to Kenya in 1966, Wangari came to understand the link between poverty and environmental destruction. Many of Kenya's poor farmers couldn't afford to grow anything other than soil-harming cash crops. They needed to chop down trees for firewood. These practices provided the poor with income, food, and shelter. But the same practices also destroyed the environment, causing deforestation and pollution. As the land was stripped of its nutrients, it became less productive. This, in turn, yielded fewer crops, which meant less money for already impoverished farmers and fewer chances for a brighter future. Wangari understood that saving Kenya's environment meant first addressing the roots of Kenyan poverty. And in order to do that, she'd need to find cheap, sustainable ways to live off the land. Her solution, naturally, was trees. Tree roots helped to hold dirt in place, which protected lands from mudslides and erosion. Trees cleaned the air of pollution. They provided an environment for birds and other animals. Wangari understood that she would need a higher level of academic support before she truly grasped the full scope of what she intended to do. To that end, she decided to pursue a doctorate degree at the University of Nairobi. At this same time, Wangari met and fell in love with a man named Mwangi Mathai. They courted over the next few years, though Wangari would often put their relationship on hold so that she could focus on her studies. The University of Nairobi was, well, not as liberal as the colleges Wangari had enjoyed in America. She was not allowed to study her chosen field, zoology, because she was a woman. She took the next best option and studied veterinary anatomy, with an emphasis on insects and how they impacted crops. The university did not have much in terms of laboratory equipment, and by 1967, Wangari had reached a point where she couldn't even carry out the experiments she needed to complete her degree. 
Despite the fact that things were getting serious with Mwangi, Wangari relocated to Germany and enrolled in the University of Gießen. Two years later, in 1969, the University of Nairobi greatly expanded its laboratories and acquired a number of electron microscopes, the absence of which had been a key factor leading Wangari to move to Germany. She was able to return to Kenya, where she continued pursuing her doctorate at the University of Nairobi and married Mwangi Mathai. Their marriage was strained almost from the start. Wangari was outspoken, liberal, and driven in her career aspirations. Mwangi was much more traditional. From the earliest days of their union, the couple argued about Wangari's name. Wangari wanted to follow Kenyan tradition and keep her surname Muta. Mwangi wanted her to follow the more modern custom and take his name. She eventually relented and became Wangari Mathai though one can imagine that this early clash didn't bode well for their marriage. Mwangi's own career goals soon made things worse. As Wangari continued her doctorate studies, Mwangi decided to run for Kenyan parliament. This put Mwangi, and by extension Wangari, in the national spotlight. Many more traditional Kenyans felt that a woman should remain uneducated and stay at home to support her husband. As Mwangi campaigned, Wangari found herself having to take on the persona of a quiet, supportive wife. She hated it, but she loved her husband and didn't want to hurt his chances in the election. But it ended up being all for nothing. Mwangi lost the election in December of 1969. Weeks later, Wangari gave birth to her first son, Waweru. Over the next few years, Wangari and Mwangi had two more children, a daughter named Wanjira and another son named Muta. Despite the challenges of motherhood and of being the wife of an aspiring politician, Wangari continued her studies. She finally gained her Ph.D. in veterinary anatomy in 1971. She was the first woman in all of East Africa to ever earn a doctoral degree. Now that she was a bona fide doctor, Wangari's next step was to ingratiate herself with Kenya's established academic community and gather support for her environmental plans. Unfortunately, despite all of her accomplishments, Wangari was still a young woman in a very male-dominated world. In 1971, she took a teaching position at the University of Nairobi, only to find that she wouldn't receive the same benefits as her male co-workers. The university felt that, as a married woman, Wangari had a husband who could provide for her, and thus she wasn't entitled to things like housing, health insurance, or even a pension. Wangari's long-term plan to save Kenya's environment was put on hold while she took on the task of fighting for gender equality at the university. She tried to unionize her fellow female employees to no success. Wangari eventually threatened to sue the university's chancellor. While there's no telling if this would have actually worked, the university leadership decided it was easier to relent than to face a potential legal battle. Wangari was granted a right to university housing. It wasn't the full extent of what she was owed, but she took pride in the victory. Wangari had fought against injustice and learned the value of not backing down. In 1974, Mwangi once again ran for public office. He won this time, 
and Wangari found herself once again trying to balance her own career with the expectations that society had for her as the wife of a politician. In private, Wangari wasn't exactly the most supportive wife to Mwangi's political goals. She had concerns that he wouldn't be able to keep the promises he'd made while campaigning. Mwangi had made job creation a cornerstone of his platform, but now that he was in office, he really didn't have any idea on how to deliver. However, Wangari did have a plan, and it would combine both her and her husband's goals. Wangari came up with a way to fight poverty, help restore the farmland, and keep her husband in good standing with his constituents. Wangari and Mwangi worked together to establish an initiative called EnviroCare. This program encouraged rich landowners in Mwangi's district to hire poor farmers to plant trees on their estates. Not only would this program create jobs, it would also help to address the underlying core causes of Kenya's ecological problems. Unfortunately, EnviroCare never took off. Wangari and Mwangi couldn't get enough landowners on board to sustain the program. While her earliest initiative failed, Wangari wasn't prepared to give up on her environmentalist goals. In 1976, 36-year-old Wangari joined the National Council of Women of Kenya, or the NCWK. This group encouraged women to organize for equality and to advance women's issues. While the NCWK wasn't strictly an environmentalist organization, Wangari was able to use her membership to help the other women in the organization see the link between conservation and women's rights. In Kenya, it was the women who were mostly responsible for collecting clean drinking water and firewood for their families. This had become more difficult in recent years as trees and water became more scarce and women had to travel farther and farther to access these resources. Wangari saw a solution. She wanted to encourage women to plant trees in their communities in order to improve the quality of the land. When the trees matured, rural women would have a nearby source of firewood. Working with the NWCK, Wangari founded a tree planting initiative called the Green Belt Movement, which encouraged women to plant a tree for each one they cut down. In June of 1977, on World Environment Day, Wangari and a few other members of the NWCK planted seven trees at the Kamakunji grounds in Nairobi, which cemented the beginning of the movement's mission. Like the failed EnviroCare movement, Wangari's Greenbelt movement worked to improve the environment as a means of combating poverty. It would succeed where EnviroCare failed, by not relying on the support of self-interested wealthy landowners, but instead galvanizing poor women. The Greenbelt movement offered women a small compensation of four cents for every tree they planted. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to incentivize hundreds of women to get involved. Wangari also encouraged her workers and volunteers to speak with one another in their native languages. This was a big change after decades of British rule had pushed English on Kenyans as the preferred language. As more women got involved, Wangari helped oversee a general shift back to traditional language. The Green Belt movement was a success, albeit a modest one. By the middle of summer in 1977, Wangari had hopes to expand the still new program, but her work was soon affected by turmoil in her home life. After less than a year in parliament, 
Mwangi had come to resent his wife for not taking on a more traditional, subservient role. He felt that his fellow representatives in parliament looked down on him for not keeping his wife in check. Mwangi had never been much of a communicator. By the time his resentment boiled over, the animosity between him and Wangari was far too intense to reconcile. But divorces were hard to obtain in Kenya at that time, and Wangari assumed that Mwangi would want to avoid the spectacle of a public separation. One day in July of 1977, Wangari returned home to find that many of her family's valuables had disappeared, as well as most of Mwangi's belongings. She asked around and soon learned that Mwangi had looted the house and abandoned his family. They were separated for nearly two years before Mwangi finally filed for divorce in 1979. In the official complaint, Mwangi stated that Wangari was too strong-minded for a woman. The divorce was very public and very embarrassing for Wangari. Mwangi was still a member of parliament during the proceedings, and he made a point to present himself as the wronged party. His more traditional constituents, who had never gotten used to the fact that Wangari had made such strides to be her own woman, supported him through it. Kenyan law at the time did not allow for no-fault divorces. One party had to prove that they'd been wronged, usually through adultery or abuse. Mwangi lied to the court and claimed that Wangari had committed adultery. More, he stated that her cruel behavior had given him high blood pressure, and thus he needed to divorce her for his own well-being. Wangari naturally contested the divorce. She knew that Mwangi couldn't possibly produce evidence of her adultery since he made it up, and thus the court would side with her. She was wrong. Wangari had, unfortunately, failed to see the political angle of the case and had trusted that hard facts would secure her victory. She was a driven, accomplished, professional woman in a society that had strong, narrow ideas about what kind of life a married woman should lead. She lost the case, and Mwangi successfully divorced her. He immediately started putting public pressure on Wangari to change her name back to Muta, in an ironic twist of fate, given that he had fought so vehemently for her to take his name when they were first married. Wangari refused. Mwangi had betrayed her stolen from her, slandered her, and divorced her. She would not give him the satisfaction of keeping his name for himself. She would keep the name Mathai, but she would make it her own. Shortly after the divorce, she had her name legally changed from Mathai, with one A after the M, to Mathai, with two A's after the M. This is the spelling she's still known by today. In July of 1977, just a week after the divorce trial, Wangari was interviewed by the magazine Viva about her side of the ordeal. She stated in the interview that the judge in the case must have been either incompetent or corrupt to rule in Mwangi's favor. When the interview was published, Wangari was sentenced to six months in prison for contempt of court. It was outrageous, but Wangari took the sentence in stride. She had spoken truth to power, and the fact that they had jailed her for it only gave her words more weight. Wangari returned to work with the Greenbelt Movement after she was released from prison in early 1978. 
Still reeling from the trauma of her divorce and the ordeal of being imprisoned, Wangari decided to throw herself into her work and see about expanding the Greenbelt Movement's capabilities. Wangari noticed that her movement had established several large tree nurseries in central locations between different poor communities. But it was hard for women in these areas to travel back and forth from the nurseries every day. So instead, she began to encourage women to grow small nurseries closer to their own homes. Wangari also began creating positions for men who wanted to join the movement. Many Kenyan women were illiterate, so Wangari encouraged her volunteers to bring in their educated husbands and sons to help with the record-keeping. Wangari also encouraged the group's education efforts. The Green Belt Movement offered classes on sustainable living. Some of the problems facing Kenya were out of the public's control, such as the government's tendency to sell off protected land to developers. But other ecological problems lay in short-sighted and unsustainable farming practices. Wangari hoped that if local farming families understood why their practices were harmful and that green alternatives existed, more people would be empowered to live in a greener way. Her efforts yielded tremendous success and the Green Belt movement expanded massively during the 1980s. By 1985, the organization had 2,000 women's groups running 6,000 nurseries. Unfortunately, success came at a cost. As Wangari and the Green Belt movement became more prominent, they also came to be seen as a potential threat to the Kenyan government. Coming up, we'll discuss the struggles Wangari faced as the head of the Green Belt Movement, including her numerous protests and arrests. Now back to the story. The Green Belt Movement continued to grow and expand under Wangari Mathai's leadership throughout the 1980s. Her efforts ultimately brought her to international attention in 1989, when she was honored by the Women of the World Awards. However, that year was far from easy for Wangari. The international attention she'd gained through her work had also put her on the radar of Kenya's government. There were many men in Kenyan politics that didn't care much for a single woman like Wangari Mathai making such a name for herself. In the fall of 1989, Wangari learned that Kenya's president, Daniel Arap Moy, planned to build a 60-story skyscraper and a statue of himself in Uhuru Park in Nairobi. There were very few urban green spaces in the busy city of Nairobi, and Uhuru Park was one of them. It was one of Kenya's most beloved public parks. Wangari was not going to stand by while Kenya's leadership bulldozed the space for a skyscraper. Wangari began a letter-writing campaign, hoping not only to encourage Kenya's leaders to cancel the skyscraper construction, but also to draw public attention to her cause of preserving Kenya's natural spaces. She trusted that the people of Nairobi didn't want to lose their park, and an awareness campaign would drum up popular support. But there were powerful people in Kenya's government that weren't planning on letting Wangari get in the way of the president's plan. During a parliamentary meeting in November of 1989, a number of members publicly attacked Wangari's reputation. Though over a decade had passed, these officials brought up Wangari's divorce and mocked her for being too stubborn to keep a husband. They attacked the Green Belt Movement, calling it a bogus organization stacked by a clique of overreaching women and a bunch of divorcees. 
All Wangari could do was continue to plead her case to the press, and she wasn't allowed to speak before Parliament directly. Not that doing so would have helped her, given their attitude toward her and her goals. Despite all of Wangari's efforts, skyscraper construction began in Uhuru Park on November 15th. But Wangari still didn't give up. She tried to take the issue to court and get an injunction issued to stop the construction. In response, she and the rest of the Greenbelt leaders were served with a notice to vacate their offices, which were in a government-owned building. Then, in January of 1990, the Greenbelt movement was audited. The environmental outfit was suddenly being treated like an enemy of the state. Wangari still refused to back down. She kept up the letter-writing campaign, even as the government used its powers to go after her and her movement. After months, she started to see results. The skyscraper project became increasingly unpopular, and the Kenyan government had alienated its citizens and its international partners by going after Wangari. By the end of January, a number of British and American investors in the skyscraper project had pulled out. Finally, on January 29, 1990, the government made a public announcement that they'd scrapped their plans for the Uhuru Park skyscraper and statue. The Green Belt movement won their fight, but they'd made enemies of the government in the process. Wangari was disgusted by the fact that President Moy was more easily swayed by foreign investors than he was by his own Kenyan citizens. She started to envision a Kenya that was truly ruled by its own people, not by the interest of wealthy foreigners. 1992 was an election year, and Wangari soon established herself as a pro-democracy advocate. She built her platform by being highly critical of President Moy, who was running for re-election. Moy was entrenched in the presidential office and wasn't going to go down without a fight. On January 10, 1992, Wangari received a tip that President Moy would stage a military coup rather than risk being voted out of the presidency. Wangari passed the information along to the press, but Moy's operatives were already in motion. That evening, Wangari was suddenly awakened by police assembled outside her home. They demanded to be let in to investigate a reported break-in, but Wangari refused to open the door. The police held Wangari hostage in her own home for three days. During that time, she called her contacts in the press to get the word out that she was under siege. By the time police finally cut through the steel bars of Wangari's doors and arrested her, she was an international story. Wangari was sentenced to prison on trumped-up charges of spreading malicious rumors, sedition, and treason. The charges didn't last. President Moy was already known for using his office to imprison his political enemies. The international outrage that followed Wangari's arrest led Kenyan officials to drop the charges and release her the next day. Moy's actions had inadvertently given Wangari her next target. Wangari was well known throughout Kenya and was able to rely on the support of the international community when she was arrested. But a lot of President Moy's political prisoners were not so lucky. Wangari joined an advocacy group for Moy's political prisoners. On February 28, 1992, they staged a peaceful protest at Uhuru Park. 
For five days, they staged a sit-in and a hunger strike to raise awareness about Moy's actions. The stunt worked. Wangari's involvement brought the Kenyan news to them, and with every passing day, more and more people became aware of the movement to address Moy's abuses of power. Police had been present at the protest since it began. Relations between the police and the protesters had been tense from the start. And as Wangari made it clear that they would not be intimidated, things only got worse. It all boiled over on March 3rd, when police officers donned riot gear and attacked the unarmed protesters. During the attack, many of the women in the protest stripped off their clothing. They did this in an attempt to shame the police. Traditional Kenyan culture requires young men to show older women respect, and the nude protesters drew attention to their own femininity and to the way the police were betraying their cultural heritage. Reporters on the scene captured footage of the police beating unarmed, naked women. Wangari was beaten so severely that she fell unconscious. Protesters quickly removed her from the scene of the violence. Wangari was in a coma for several days. When she awoke, she called a press conference from her hospital room. The image of a resilient, bruised 52-year-old woman continuing to speak out against corruption from a hospital bed furthered Wangari's fame in both the Kenyan and the international communities. But the government did not relent. For a year after the riot, Wangari and her fellow leaders of the Greenbelt movement were harassed, detained, and charged with bogus crimes by government officials. It actually took an effort from a group of United States senators to convince Moy's government to leave Wangari alone. All the while, Wangari continued in her mission to speak out against government corruption. She achieved a major victory in 1993 when Moy's administration finally relented and agreed to release 52 political prisoners. It took them all of four years to release all of these prisoners, but Wangari hounded the government until it was done. Throughout the rest of the 1990s, Wangari continued to speak out against corruption and spread the mission of the Greenbelt Movement to plant trees and help replenish Kenya's natural resources. She continued to craft a powerful image by fighting for what she believed in. In 2002, President Moy announced his retirement from politics. One of Wangari's oldest and most powerful political enemies was stepping down which left her free to run for a position in Kenya's parliament. Her electoral victory was a landslide. She received 98% of the popular vote. After decades as an outsider, organizing grassroots movements to try to transform Kenya, finally, Wangari had the power to change the course of her country's development from the inside. To add to her victory, Wangari was awarded the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize for her work in advancing the causes of environmentalism and the rights of women and the impoverished. She was the first African woman to win that award. However, Wangari's political career was short-lived. Decades of being on the side of the scrappy protesters had hardened her and left her with an uncompromising belief in her own moral values. She was ultimately not cut out for the morally gray world of Kenyan national politics, and many of her colleagues felt she was too radical and stubborn. 
She lost her bid for re-election in 2007 and caused controversy when she stated her belief that the new Kenyan president, Mwai Kabaki, had rigged the election against her. There were protests in reaction to Wangari's ousting, but she didn't partake in them. She decided she was more at home with the Greenbelt movement, focusing solely on the environment, the trees, and the people she was helping by promoting sustainable farming. In 2009, the United Nations appointed Wangari as one of their messengers of peace. This was a high honor reserved for distinguished individuals, and with the appointment, Wangari was tasked with promoting the values of the UN worldwide. The UN honored her again in 2010 by appointing her to the Millennium Development Goals Advocacy Group, which was committed to advancing causes like education, food security, and gender equality. Unfortunately, she did not get much time to contribute to the group's mission. In July of 2010, Wangari was diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer. She retired from public life and spent her final months in the private company of her family. While she received end-of-life treatment, Wangari insisted that she didn't want to be buried in a wooden coffin. After a lifetime spent planting trees, she didn't want one to be cut down to hold her body. On September 25, 2011, 71-year-old Wangari Mathai passed away. She was buried in a specially made coffin of bamboo, reeds, and other sustainable materials. Wangari received a state funeral in October of 2011 in Uhuru Park, the very space she had campaigned to save over two decades before. Over her lifetime, Wangari and the Green Belt Movement oversaw the planting of over 50 million trees worldwide. Wangari's transformative work earned her immense recognition. Wangari's history of breaking barriers was important because of the doors she opened for those who would follow in her footsteps. But at the end of the day, Wangari didn't work for her own recognition. She strove to preserve the earth and make life better for the people who live on our planet. As we close out the second decade of the 21st century, many of the challenges Wangari faced still lie before humanity. Climate change remains a threat to human existence. Economic and gender inequality plague every nation on Earth. But if we can learn from the example of Wangari Mathai, humanity can overcome these challenges and build a better future for our descendants. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find all previous episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Historical Figures was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.